from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join host Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? It was uh, great to see you uh, a couple of days ago in, in the flesh. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I have a feeling you've been uh, very busy this week. Yeah, been uh, been running around. Absolutely. Um, it was really nice to see you in the flesh. I think our listeners probably think we uh, meet regularly, but um, you're probably shocked to realize I think this is the second time in six months we've actually managed to meet in person, which is quite funny, to be honest. Um, yeah, we have to improve <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, what about you? Are you uh, are you permanently in these shores for a little while longer before you head off on your next adventure? Go to go into the IMO again or the UN or something to save the world? Uh, I, I still want to save the world, Chris. You know that. That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, and, and you will, of course. <laughs> no, um, I've been really busy with a lot of exciting things around COP and, and, and the SDGs and a lot of deliverables that we're going to have at COP. So that, that's been taking a lot of my time. Um, and I'm really excited about that. <laughs> Almost as excited as I am about the guests that we're about to have on. Look at that. What a perfect cue. We're almost getting into rhythm on this, aren't we? <laughs> well, absolutely. I, I'm really excited to have this guest on um, the show. So um, as uh, listeners will know, we, we previously had a very long time ago um, a, a episode with Nell. In fact, one of our first episodes with Nell. But I'm delighted to announce that this week we have Hakon Voldal, who is the CEO of Nell. I keep calling him the new CEO of Nell. Um, I'm not sure he's in t- he's been very kind about that, but um, he has actually been in post for a year now since uh, the 1st of July 2022, as I'm being reliably told by his uh, Nell profile on LinkedIn. And uh, it'll be really exciting to have Hakon on because, you know, it's been a busy, busy time for Nell. And um, recently, Hakon was appointed vice chair of the Renewable Hydrogen Coalition alongside representatives from Orsted. You know, he's a really interesting character in the space. Um, The company itself, uh, for those who are less well aware, draws its heritage from Norsk Hydro, which is, you know, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, electrolyzer manufacturer in the world. As my chief asset engineering officer reminds me, their stacks from Proton on site in the US have been used in the American nuclear fleet and uh, parts of the uh, European nuclear fleet for over 40 years. And as he'll mention themselves, um, they've got a huge amount of track record and experience from different different uh, different technologies and units in the field, both alkaline and PEM, as well as hydrogen refueling. So it should be a really exciting episode and a huge amount of different topics we can dive into, including, of course, the IRA, where they made a uh, a recent announcement around investments in the States and uh, projects in Europe. So um, I'm really excited for this one. Well, fantastic to have Hakon from Nell with us. Hakon, I wondered if uh, before we get started, it'd be great if you could 
probably tell our listeners just a little bit about the history of Nell. Um, and equally, it'd be really great because, you know, I, uh, many people probably don't realize that you're relatively new in post, if I can say that still, as a, as a year into the role as the CEO of Nell. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well and uh, what you're doing within the business? Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm, um, I'm one year into the role, as you said. Uh, I joined Nell July 2022. Prior to that, I was the CEO of a traffic technology company for six years. And then uh, I spent 12 years working for a company that makes uh, what we call reverse vending machines to recycle uh, beverage cans and bottles, Tomra. I'm an engineer by, uh, by training, and I've spent most of my career working for companies with, uh, with a great purpose. And uh, hence, I was uh, attracted by Nell last year and uh, very excited to uh, to be part of, uh, of Nell's journey. Uh, and if we then talk about the history of Nell, uh, we, we have this internal joke that Nell is the world's la- uh, oldest startup. I believe Nell is the world's oldest electrolyzer company. You might be able to arrest me on that, but at least we trace our roots back to the 1920s. In 1927, when Nell was part of a company called Nosk Hydro, which today is a big aluminium producer. It installed its first electrolyzer in Norway. It wasn't a large installation, but just a few years later, Nell built the 167 megawatt plant in Norway. At that location, Norsk Hydro had a large hydropower plant and a large ammonia plant. Hence, Norsk Hydro made green ammonia for fertilizer right around the time when Europe was on the brink of a food crisis. And then in the 1950s, a second large-scale plant was built in Norway, this time 135 megawatt, and also for production of green ammonia. So it's, it's interesting to, to see that, uh, you know, almost 100 years ago, the largest electrolyzer plant that has ever been into operation was uh, constructed. And today we're talking about, you know, big plants being 20, 40, 60 megawatts. Anyways, in uh, 2011, the modern Nell history began. The company was spun off from Nosk Hydro or Equinor, the oil and gas company at that point in time, and was taken private. In 2014, the company was publicly listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange as the world's first pure play hydrogen company. And today we're still a pure play hydrogen technology company. We offer two key solutions. One is water electrolyzers, and the second is hydrogen refueling stations. We have delivered uh, approximately three and a half thousand electrolyzers to more than 80 countries around the world, both alkaline and PEM electrolyzers, and more than 100 refueling stations to approximately 15 markets. We are a little more than 600 dedicated employees, and we have production facilities in the US, Denmark, and Norway, including the world's first fully automated electrode production line. I mean, hell well, I mean, I, uh, before Alicia jumps in, I mean, the scale of that is actually quite staggering. I was just uh, frantically scribbling to write that down. But three and a half thousand um, deployed systems is a is a really significant uh, is a really significant number. And obviously, you've announced a number of um, fairly big uh, deals recently. Do you want to tell our listeners about one or two of them? Maybe something that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I mean, our our purpose and our mission and vision is to. Um, you know, decarbonize the world and uh, unlock the potential of uh, renewable energy through hydrogen. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, many of the three and a half thousand electrolyzers we have sold historically are small, let's call them dishwasher sized electrolyzers. 
used for production of artificial diamonds in the semiconductor industry, etc. Uh, and that's all good, um, but I'm personally more excited about the large-scale industrial projects because that is the only way we can decarbonize the world. And, and hence, you know, I think some of the contracts I would like to to highlight are the are the large-scale contracts we have received in in the U.S., where we um, are building a 200 megawatt uh, plant for production of green uh, ammonia, again for uh, fertilizers, and also a 160 megawatt plant for uh, uh, liquid hydrogen for the mobility industry. So I think those those two large-scale contracts are really, really exciting. And then we also see some positive developments in, in Europe with multiple 20, 40, 60 megawatt projects as a, as a start for a variety of different uh, applications. And that's that's what we need to do. Uh, we need more megawatts and gigawatts installed from Nell and other OEMs. Otherwise, we, we're never going to make hydrogen yeah, an important part of the energy transition. I completely agree with you being on the large project side of the equation. I'm just wondering, um, you, your biggest one is, is the U.S. And then, of course, you have another one in Europe. Have you seen a lot of benefits from IRA um, or anything that uh, Europe could learn from, from how the U.S. is handling hydrogen? That is probably what I have talked the most about in in the past few months because everybody wants wants to know you know the impact uh, of IRA we made a decision this year to build our next gigafactory in the US and then a lot of people have asked me uh, is that is that due to IRA but the honest answer is is not only due to IRA or motivated by IRA but but it definitely played a role uh, because after the announcement of IRA we have seen a significant increase in requests for electrolyzers from the US and we believe demand in North America will be very strong in the years to come. Uh, Nell then needs to have available production capacity close to where we find our customers. Main reasons being that uh, logistics become cheaper and simpler. Also the carbon footprint comes down because the equipment is local and we don't need to ship thousands of tons of steel across the Atlantic Ocean. And I believe over time, as part of IRA, but also as part of, um, of geopolitics, U.S. will enforce local content requirements, which means unless you produce in the U.S., it will be hard to sell to the U.S. Um, and then IRA uh, is not something we can tap into now, but if our customers can tap into IRA, then, of course, makes a lot of sense for us to have local production. Um, the U.S. also offers skilled workers, uh, used to working shifts, collaboration opportunities with amazing technical universities and leading companies such as General Motors, with whom we have a partnership with, and also attractive funding mechanisms on state and federal level. So I, you know, if you look at IRA, it represents a huge carrot. It's rich in terms of funding levels, up to $3 per kilogram of hydrogen, it's fairly simple to understand and market driven, meaning, you know, the market selects the projects, not, not the bureaucrats. In short, companies looking to develop hydrogen projects understand the mechanisms and feel that the visibility on and attractiveness of project financials are higher than, for example, in Europe. Because in Europe, we, we did the opposite. We started with the stick. The EU has introduced mandatory demand-side targets, put together a quite comprehensive legislative framework that regulates, you know, what can be considered renewable or low-carbon hydrogen. But 
when it comes to the carrot, it has been sliced and diced into many different pieces. We have the Innovation Fund, the Hydrogen Bank, the IPSAI, yada, yada, yada. And the challenge is that if you take all these mechanisms, all, all these schemes, and you add up the total funding, it's simply dwarfed by the money made available uh, through IRA. As an example, IRA is several hundred billion dollars. And the first hydrogen bank auction is 800 million euros. The money spent in the US on establishing eight regional hydrogen hubs is more than double the amount handed out to European hydrogen projects through the European Innovation Fund. So net-net, obviously, the US will have to put in place some restrictions on who will qualify for um, IRA funding. But what Europe needs to learn from the US is that money talks and companies will go where they can maximize the support and Hakon, just an interesting follow-up from that one, because you spoke about local content, and I, I think this is quite a topical one for a lot of listeners. I mean, you know, and I know it's also a favorite and hated question of European electrolyzer manufacturers, but, you know, many people say that uh, China and India are going to be so cheap at producing and they're going to dominate the market. How does the IRA, you know, or IRA, as you say, how does it change the way, that, or in your view, does it change the way people should think about the competitiveness of European and North American electrolyzer manufacturers compared to um, challenges from China and India? Does it create a more level playing field? Uh, what's your take on that? That's a great question. You know, if, if I could answer that perfectly, I, uh, I would be a billionaire, I guess. But, um, you know, many of my colleagues at Nell have worked in the solar industry. And they experienced exactly that. Europe and the US were early movers. Then the Chinese stepped in and beat everybody. They, the Chinese observed what worked, what didn't, and doubled down super fast on, on what worked. Um, European and US companies had spent a fortune on R&D and production lines, but were left with many, I guess, uncompetitive legacy sites with outdated technology. Fortunately, I think... Electrolysis is more complicated. Therefore, I believe that we can stay ahead. Um, we might not be able to beat the Chinese on CapEx, but we can offer the most advanced and efficient electrolyzers. And when we know that up to 70-80% of the levelized cost of hydrogen is linked to efficiency, meaning power consumption, I hope that we can beat them on that. Um, but long term, it probably comes down to geopolitics and, and industrial policies. We see that there is a growing trend to source locally and buy American in the U.S., uh, Ref IRA. Um, many people believe that you will get $3, but the base amount is actually $0.60. Cents, and then you apply a multiplier on that uh, based on meeting certain criteria. You need to create jobs. It has to be green. Um, you need to source locally unless it's impossible to source locally. And I doubt that the Chinese will find it as easy to win in hydrogen in the U.S. as it might have been in solar. Now, if we look at Europe, you know, we, we want to be the champions of free trade. So there I'm a little less optimistic um, because unless we create, as you said, a level playing field for European and Chinese OEMs, it will be hard to deny the Chinese market access. And in, in my opinion, the EU should at least hold the Chinese to the same standards as its domestic suppliers. For example, carbon border adjustment taxes to neutralize the cost benefit of using dirty steel. I've heard that steel in China can be as much as 70% cheaper than steel made in Europe. That, of course, is a big, big uh, difference. 
Um, if we talk about ESG and taxonomy requirements, um, okay, uh, but let's also apply that uh, to the Chinese um, because in Europe we do pay decent salaries, we do have pension plans, etc. So, so what does that mean when you want to select a supplier? And I think also the same reporting requirements uh, that put an extra burden on European suppliers versus the Chinese. They also need to include Chinese um, companies selling into Europe. So I, you know, uh, ultimately, I think the EU needs to ensure that EU taxpayer money is spent on promoting European technologies and, and not on importing Chinese technology. But I, I do see that it's, it's a difficult one um, because trade has many benefits. But in my opinion, then can we at least make that trade fair? Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if you have access to any kind of uh, ECAs, uh, any incentives uh, from your where your production facilities are uh, that will help subsidize your equipment and uh, give you a little bit of an edge to, to compete with China. Does, does Norway have a, an ECA uh, like EKF in Denmark? Um, they have spent some money on uh, green hydrogen projects, but it's uh, around 100 million euros. Uh, they have spent far more on blue hydrogen. You know, so far we have received zero in financing for the scale-up of our um, production plants in, in Norway. We did apply for money from the European Innovation Fund, um, but the scale-up didn't qualify as uh, innovative enough. The, <laughs> the funny thing then is when you have the most advanced production facility in the world and you want to scale up that, uh, it's not uh, innovative. But if you we had, let's say, a manual production line and wanted to do exactly the same, we would qualify. So that that's what makes it hard to to accomplish things in Europe. Uh, at the end of the day, you have certain bureaucrats that, that need to make decisions on all these applications, but it's tedious and you know quite expensive to, to file an application and then wait for the outcome. You need to move ahead, and that is why we went to the US, because there they have funding packages on state level. Uh, we, we got quite, quite a nice deal in, in Michigan um, to build a gigafactory in Michigan. And on top of that, we can apply for federal funding as we continue to expand. Um, that, I think, that, that, I think, is you know, our main motivation for uh, locating in, uh, in North America. And as Hagan, what I was going to say is, obviously, our listeners might not be aware that um, recently you were elected vice chair of the Renewable Hydrogen Coalition. And so actually, you, you know, beyond being CEO of, of NEL, you're also with your colleagues um, from Orsted who, who are now chairing that association in clearly quite a big position to sort of, as it were, speak to and directly influence a lot of the stakeholders involved in this. And I guess that kind of leads to, you know, something we've spoken about on the show before, which is that part of having influence is also being able to speak with credibility and so beyond the three and a half thousand electrifiers you've sold i wondered if you could actually tell our listeners a little bit about the project that nell has been doing with ibadrola in spain because it is one of the largest pem operational plants i think it might be the largest in europe currently you can correct me if i'm wrong can you just tell us and our listeners a little bit about that project that you've been involved in and why nell was chosen for that because i think that gives our listeners a bit of context as to just how important it is to listen to people and companies like yourselves when you're expressing these concerns, given all the experiences you have. Yeah, thank you. I um, 
I might want to start with uh, sort of a general statement, and and, and that is, um, you know, the cost of green hydrogen is is simply too high today to make it viable unless uh, you get some kind of external funding. At least you need deep pockets. And then as we start to move down the cost curve and we learn more about how we can optimize the capex and opex of the equipment and hopefully also fossil energy will presumably become more expensive. The projects will become attractive without government support, um, but but to reward the pioneers that, that want to invest today, uh, they, they need support. Now, if you look at Ibedrola, obviously it's it's a big uh, company in, in Spain and, and, and they could afford it. Uh, but to give you some facts about that project, it was commissioned in 2022. I do think it's Europe's largest electrolyzer plant in operation. It consists of uh, 100 megawatt of photovoltaic solar plant, a lithium ion battery system with a storage capacity of 20 megawatt hours, and a hydrogen production system um, consisting of 20 megawatt of PEM electrolyzer capacity. And that generates up to 3,000 tons of hydrogen per year which is used by Fertiberia's local ammonia plant. For this project, we're talking about a total investment, at least according to Ibedrola, of more than 150 million euros. You know, that project has created close to a thousand new jobs, but it's a, it's a sizable investment. I mean, 150 million euros for 20 megawatt. Imagine if, if it's uh, 200 megawatt. Uh, it might not be 1.5, but, but you sort of, you, you get my drift. It's, it's super, super expensive to build these uh, large scale facilities today. I mean, it's, it's been a challenging time for electrolyzer companies over the last few years, just balancing the scale up. And, and I saw that Nell recently mentioned or stated that they thought that these big projects would use a combination of different technologies, um, different types of electrolyzers. Is that one of the ways you think you can help manage the scale up of your technology and then new technologies and, and somehow helping them to scale or, or, you know, combining or working together? Is there, is there any, um, is there a method to that? Is there a reason, a rationale for why you think that there that these big projects will use a combination of different electrolyzers? Is it just availability, or is it to help to sort of partner and help them scale up? Well, um, if you look at these different technologies, they have different pros and cons. Uh, alkaline today is cheaper; um, it consumes less energy, but and it's proven at scale, but it requires a big footprint and it doesn't respond very fast to load changes. So imagine that you have a large plant con- connected to a um, solar farm or a wind farm where obviously production uh, has to be ramped up and down depending on you know how much wind you have or how much sun you have. For these projects, it could be, could be good to use alkaline electrolyzers for the base load and then use the PEM capacity to quickly ramp up and down for the peak periods. But I'm not saying that this necessarily will become you know, the blueprint for all projects. But when you look at these large-scale systems uh, connected to renewable energy systems, it's at least an interesting 
combination of technologies where you can benefit from from you know the the, the advantages that both platforms can offer. And if you, if you look at Nell, you know we we haven't sort of figured out what is you know the the the, the winning technology of the future. And, and the interesting thing is that we need volumes on existing products to justify more investments into R&D and new and better technology. And at the same time, many customers want to wait for the latest and greatest. And this means you can either buy something that works at a decent cost today, but you might not be competitive 10 years from now. Or you can take a chance on something brand new, which is not proven yet. And it's also quite expensive because there is no scale, there is no volume. We have decided to bet on multiple platforms. Uh, we develop alkaline solutions, both atmospheric and pressurized. We, uh, we have our PEM uh, technology, and we've also looked into AEM, anion exchange membranes, for 10 years. And that is, of course, expensive. But we do not know which technology will eventually win. The funny thing is that if you compare the key characteristics of all these different technologies based on the best case scenario for each of them. They're almost identical. Hence, you could argue that it, it doesn't make sense to, to go with all, all these different technologies. We should just pick one and push forward aggressively with that. But each technology has certain challenges that must be overcome. And what if we bet on one and are enabled to meet all the required milestones in terms of efficiency, lifetime, and cost? Then we then we lose out. So, so therefore, we pursue many technologies at the moment and can offer, I think, quite realistic and unbiased views on the strengths and weaknesses of each technology, including hybrid solutions. Some of these um, projects that are based on solar only, the capacity factor is obviously really low. And so by combining different technologies, you can actually help improve the throughput. Um, so, so I could see that why that makes a lot of sense. And then th- there are some with obviously higher capacity factors with wind, but if you can't combine them and at complementary times, uh, you're going to have a pretty, pretty low capacity factor and have to make up with it, it with a reactive technology, but also storage, et cetera. But it, it sounds like having different uh, types of electrolyzers would help as well. I, I wonder if you think that, I mean, you say you want to focus on we think we should pick one, but all of the electrolyzers use um, elements of uh, either metals or, or chemicals or different materials that are not necessarily just available everywhere. And maybe there's a benefit to some di- differentiation by technology as well as geography so that we don't get stuck with one type of solar panel that China is making 90% of in the world. Do you think there's uh, an, a benefit then to, to maybe having a couple kinds? I mean, I, I see you're doing as a company, but just generally for the world, there may be a benefit to have, uh, to have multiple options. Yeah, and I, um, I'm just saying that, you know, when, when I joined Nell, the first question I asked was, why, why do we have all these different technologies that, that looks so expensive? And, and can we win if we pursue all of them? But then you realize that, Right now, it's, it's really hard to pick one because they do have pros and cons. In, on some projects, you know, clearly it's PEM. On other projects, it's clearly alkaline. And on some projects, I mean, it could be either or. Then we have these new technologies being developed like solid oxide. Could be super interesting for, uh, let's say, manufacturing of green steel. 
You have um, anion exchange membrane technology, which will it's basically a PEM electrolyzer run with lye instead of um, uh, an acidic uh, environment, and, and that enables you to, you know, have the dynamic response, the short response time of the, of the PEM technology, but you step away from using iridium and platinum on your electrodes. Uh, I do think all these different technologies could play a role. Look at the battery industry. We have multiple different battery technologies. Uh, and depending on whether you want the long-range uh, battery or you're just going to have it for uh, short commutes, you pick different battery technologies. And, and I think it's the same thing for electrolysis. We, Of course, it's, it's going to be challenging sometimes um, to source the, the needed iridium and platinum. Uh, other times, um, you might have uh, easy access to it. So I think for for Europe and the world, uh, it's, it's good that we can hedge a little bit on the technology side. Uh, I do think I do think PEM stacks will consume less iridium and platinum than they do today. I think we will find ways of recycling, you know, the old stacks and create a closed loop. But yes, we are exposed to rare earth minerals uh, less less so on the alkaline side than on the PEM side, um, where it's mostly nickel. Um, but it's it's definitely, you know, a risk, the whole supply chain sourcing setup for, for some of these materials, I agree. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, I think we've, I'm conscious we've covered quite a broad array of different things um, so far in discussion, um, and I'm also conscious of time. One of the things that I just didn't uh, think we could uh, ignore, which we sort of talked about a little bit, Hakon, was firstly, a bit of your personal background. We talked a bit about that, but like, why kind of get into hydrogen and all of these challenges, right? I want to sort of push a little bit more on that angle because I think every CEO I've met in the space around green hydrogen, you know, it's it's sort of not just an engineering interest or rarely just an engineering interest. There's usually sort of a slightly more personal element. So I'd love to to hear what that is from you. And then equally, we've just had the NEL financial results, which, you know, I'm sure some of our listeners will have listened to, but others won't. So I will, as we finish off, I wanted to give you an opportunity as well to maybe draw our listeners' attention to uh any highlights that you thought were particularly relevant or that you wanted to boast about, frankly? So I'm, I'm a purpose-driven uh, person. You know, I like to wake up in the morning, go to work and feel that I'm, you know, doing something useful together with my colleagues. And I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hydrogen fundamentalist. I don't think hydrogen is the answer to absolutely everything. I don't need to I feel stand up and, and, and argue that hydrogen is a better solution than battery electric vehicles. I, I think hydrogen has its role to play in the energy transition. And, and I think without hydrogen, we're not going to get there. Uh, there are 20, 30% of the carbon emissions that we cannot fix with the direct electrification. And, and I want to be part of that solution. I know it's tough you know it's 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 not easy to operate in the hydrogen industry but it's super interesting um <laughs> you have ups and downs uh, in a very dynamic environment you you have uh, great progress and advances you know customers that come out and say we want to do something in hydrogen then you have setbacks where people say well i don't believe in hydrogen anymore um, but I want to make it work. You know, I, I think this is important. I, I'm grateful and thankful that, that some people, you know, develop solar panels, that they make windmills, that they, um, you know, work on battery technology. We need all of that. But the world also need, needs hydrogen. 
And being a Norwegian with our sort of proud oil and gas industry, it feels good to maybe also out of Norway be able to create something which is related to the green shift or the or the energy transition. If we could, you know, really leverage what what Nell has done over the past hundred years and and maintain our leading role, uh, I think that would be uh, extremely rewarding, not just for me, but for, for everybody in, uh, in Nell. So I am, um, you know, I, I decided to join Nell. I read up on the company. Of course, I didn't know everything, but I, I do notice that the company and its customers uh, value, you know, the, the track record. Uh, we have, as I said, an unprecedented history of building hydrogen plants. We have delivered thousands of electrolyzers over the years that have been in operation for a long time. We're not selling paper electrolyzers. We're selling proven technology. And the broad portfolio, which sometimes can be quite challenging, also offers you know, really interesting opportunities in, in terms of following the progress across all these different uh, platforms. Um, and what we want to do is, is to make hydrogen affordable, simple, and, you know, durable. Uh, so we will op- focus on durability, uptime, and efficiency. And I I do think that if we go down that road, we can also stand up against competition from China or India. And, and finally, you know, looking at Nell a year ago, I was, you know, surprised by the boldness of the company. You have this small company out of Norway that decided to invest upfront in the world's first fully automated production line, a 500 megawatt production line, which we're now doubling to to one gigawatt without having the order backlog to support it. And I think that boldness uh, attracted me. Uh, we continue to push forward. And, um, you know, I I do think that uh, there's there's room for, for many OEMs out there. And I hope that Nell will be one of the more successful ones. Obviously, it will take time. As you said, we we released our second quarter results and we're happy to see internally that now we've sort of, you know, we're on on a positive trend curve. Year on year figures are improving. We have growth. Yes, we're still losing money, but we're losing less compared to last year. Uh, We have a growing order intake and backlog. Projects are getting bigger. You know, we're not selling five, 10 megawatt plants anymore. We're selling 20, 40, 60, 100 megawatt plants. Um, and some of the projects we are working on are gigawatt projects. And then you can talk about having an impact and going back to me being a purpose-driven guy. Gigawatt projects will change the world. It will decarbonize heavy industry in a way that is unprecedented. And, and I think to be part of that is, is just uh, just a privilege. It feels like you're walking my brain. (laughs) Exactly how we uh, uh, feel about the world as well. And and we really need to have um, these major projects to get to that critical mass so that, you know, you can have that green shift. I also like your your green shift. I might, I might take that. (laughs) We've we've said the transition so many times, Um, (laughs) but um, yeah, it's, it's really inspiring to hear what motivates you. And, and I think, probably Chris would agree uh, motivates him and, and, and motivates, uh, you know, everyone that we know in hydrogen, um, which is one of the nice things about our sector, but I'll let Chris, <laughs> Chris might have an opposite opinion. Let's see. 
<laughs> no, look, I mean, I think, um, you know, I thought it, it really appreciate you kind of, you know, the candor and the honesty and the passion is fantastic. And look, I think my my sentiment is not do we need to have big projects? It, my sentiment is the when. I think that's the debate I've often had with many people is is that approach. You know, the reality is today that, you know, we, we as you talked about in the history, Hakon, you know, we've not had projects bigger than, you know, I think the biggest electrolyzer project ever built today that I'm aware of is a 230 megawatt project now in China. And prior to that, it was around 230 megawatts in Norway. So, and reality is we don't have today hundreds of thousands of people who are experienced electrolyzer operators experienced in the maintenance and servicing who've done multiple insurance contracts who've done bank project finance debt and that will come and it needs to come it's important to come but the worst thing that could happen in this industry is that we have a bunch of projects that we rush through that are very big that don't work they lose people a ton of money and ultimately undermine the sector so that's where i come from is we want the big projects to seed therefore businesses like mine are trying to help if you like build that comfort that ecosystem that evidence base amongst insurers amongst banks amongst universities that are training the next generation of engineers and getting everyone to the place where they're comfortable taking fid on these multi-billion projects because they can see that that ecosystem is there and so you know i guess that's how i see what proteum does in the landscape is that we help create that initial surge of orders for businesses like nell we help get people comfortable and familiar with that technology and then we use that to actually build confidence so that alicia you guys can go to every bank in the world and every insurer in the world and everyone goes yep great we've seen the nail kit a million times at all these different scales we're super comfortable let's go and that's how everyone i see comes together so very much on the same wavelength i think it's just the the mechanism of how we get there this procedure to how we get there is is probably where i have a slightly different opinion uh, it's, it's just another case of and not or <laughs> seems to be a perpetual um with our with our industry can I chime in on that, uh, Chris? Would be rude of me as a host to prevent you otherwise. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, but I I, uh, I agree with you. You know, we, we spoke about Ibidrola and that being the largest plant in operation in Europe. But what I do see as quite promising is that, for instance, in September, Ovaco, a Swedish uh, steel producer, will inaugurate its 20 megawatt plant in Hofor, Sweden, in Denmark, Everfuel is building a 20 megawatt plant uh, for refinery that is expected to go into operation in the near future. And in the Netherlands, um, although not with Nell, Shell is building a 200 megawatt plant in Rotterdam. So we, we do get you know more and more of these, let's call them 10, 20 megawatt projects. And as we get more of them, we can apply the learnings from let's call them smaller projects, 4, 5, 10, 20 megawatt, and we can apply those learnings on the large projects. But I I think to accelerate that development, we need to acknowledge that the hydrogen industry is today immature. It's not a very developed value chain. Um, Nell used to build complete hydrogen plants, turnkey plants. And, and if we want to do that, we have the capacity maybe to run two or three large projects per year. And we're never going to fill our factories doing that. And, and if we don't fill our factories, we don't get the cost down, then, you know, nothing will happen. So I think even though we, we are fairly broad on the technology side, we have decided to be super focused on the scope of supply, which is extremely challenging because customers want a fully wrapped solution. And then we come and we say, well, ideally, we would like you to buy electrolyzer stacks and gas separation systems. Uh, when it comes to power, uh, compression, 
scrubbers, yada, 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 then, you know, you can buy this equipment from others. And then the customers go, well, but we don't, we don't have the competence and the know-how to do that. Well, then we look for the EPCs, but the EPCs haven't done many hydrogen projects. I do think that as we get some of these larger projects, we get more interest from companies that eventually will be able to fill these roles and together with electrolyzer manufacturers and project developers complete, you know, the, the value chain in a way. Um, so, so I, whereas we will continue to do smaller scale projects to get successes out in the market and, and the learnings, we also need the big projects to get, you know, the competence and skills into this industry. And I often internally say that, yes, in the world of hydrogen, we're leaders, but to be honest, I think Nell and most other hydrogen companies need to improve quite a bit uh, in order to make hydrogen, you know, actually leverage the, the potential of hydrogen like we want to. As I said, you know, it has to be affordable, it has to be available, and it has to be simple. And I think we have a long way to go as an industry before we get there. But we're taking big strides and large projects tend to, you know, excite companies and people that can help us deliver on that promise faster. Well, look, I think um, we've been spoiled already with your time. And um, I think yeah, our listeners, there's a lot there to digest. So um, could you just say on behalf of um, the Everything About Hydrogen team, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us, Hakan. And thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So Alicia, that was um, something of a tour de force, I think, from Hakon in terms of covering quite a large different array of areas, all the way from electrolyzer competitiveness to IRA to different types of electrolyzer technology and and project configurations. Um, you know, of all the different things we covered, what sort of stood out for you? Were there any, uh, you know, insights or angles or just general information about sort of the business that really, you know, resonated or that you thought uh, was worth, you know, reflecting on a little more? Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting, his strategy, which is, is, is really to obviously do smaller projects. I mean, it's incredible the amount of risk that they're taking on, as he said. Um, and I, I think that's obviously wonderful. And it shows a lot of confidence in the industry. But uh, I think he, he also recognizes that the larger projects will, will really you know, not, not be just a drop in the bucket and, and can get us to that critical mass so that everyone can be doing projects everywhere um, and at, you know, a price that is, is affordable. So I really kind of think his two-pronged approach is really sensible. And I, and I think that he's right that the, these large projects are going to end up having multiple equipment providers, and that can actually be really positive for helping to, to balance the um, energy and, and to, to basically uh, optimize uh, these, these facilities. I, I think it's, uh, it's always, you know, really nice to hear from people who are so motivated by the mission. And, you know, you, know, you and I always uh, are on that same page, but uh, it, it's, it's nice to, to hear that that's what gets them up in the morning because that's the kind of person that's, that's going to actually make a dent and, and, and really never give up before this is successful. 
Yeah, and as you say, I mean, that's the critical thing, right, is that actually this stuff is really tough. Um, it's really difficult, and there's going to be a whole bunch of compromises and challenges, and, um, you know, you need people that can – you can step in, and, you know, I think you can sense um, the pride in, you know, what he's doing and the pride sort of for Norway and talking about projects in Sweden and talking about projects in Denmark and in the Netherlands and in Spain and, you know, this sense of momentum there. And, you know, also pride in the team, you know, saying, you know, we want to pay people properly and we want to make sure that everyone's looked after and that we're meeting the highest standards. And and that tension and frustration, I think that, you know, sometimes companies, um, especially senior management companies, find it quite difficult to speak so candidly about these things. Um, they're all thinking them, but they may not feel that they're able to say them. So it's actually very refreshing to have Hakon say, you know, actually, um, you know, what is it that investors ultimately and, and policymakers really want? You know, if you want to have, you know, companies that behave ethically and that are sustainable and that are investing in innovation, you know, but you're not prepared to pay for that, well, that's a disconnect. You know, something's got to give there, you know, and either you've got to have an industrial strategy that supports that and, you know, gets behind that and helps businesses like his to get to a critical scale where they can really drive down costs, you know, which is the US approach, you know, or you need to think about, you know, actually how important is it to be a major player in this space and, you know, how comfortable is Europe with replicating what we've done with solar panels in, in Europe or not? You know, and I, I, I thought all of that was quite interesting. And and actually even his point on technology, I'm sure my colleague and, and other electrolyzer manufacturers would have their own opinions on it. But, you know, his observation of, you know, ultimately all of these electrolyzer technologies can become better. They can become more efficient. They can, you know, have better longevity and use less rare earths. But the bigger question right now is not trying to guess which technology is the best it's just actually investing in in them and you know if you've got limited resources potentially investing in one or two of them to get it to be as competitive as possible and um, delivering the best solutions possible so that you can get that market going um, you know you can help to develop the industry which as he said is, is probably a little bit uh, lacking in maturity right now and then ultimately allow you know people like Nell, but also you know yourself, Alicia, and team to build these mega projects using the best in class technology, right? Um, and I, and I just think the way he pulled that together was really was was good to have it sort of put so bluntly and to lay out the challenges and not be afraid to lay out the challenges. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, I asked him the question about um, UCAs, and and I actually probably should have explained the acronym myself, but I was asking more about the export credit agencies and. I'm not sure if Norway has one, to be honest. Um, there's Norges Bank, but I'm not sure that they're an export credit agency. Any keen listeners who are aware of a Norwegian credit export agency, please do write in. <laughs> exactly. Let us know. Um, yes, uh, um, it, it would be interesting to find out uh, what, what, what Norway has. But it, just in his surroundings, there's a lot of different pockets uh, which from the export credit agencies. If if you're going to sell your product and you have any operations at all in one of these countries with export credit agencies, you can get financing, which allows your product to be much cheaper. And then obviously that makes you more competitive. It's not the typical EU pockets, but it's more the ECAs from each country individually and the, um, the development banks as well, because they have to, uh, decarbonize a huge portfolio of lots of of cement and concrete and bridges and 
all sorts of things that they've done in every developing country in the world. And they own portions of those companies and they have ESG standards that means that they need to get to net zero. So they will be decarbonizing and they will be, um, you know, financing that um, as well. So that there, there's going to be a lot more pockets, I think, than just Europe that will allow Europe to maintain its status or to grow its status with these pieces of equipment. But it, I also think it's just great that, you know, we, we want to have the equipment made in Europe. We also want it made in the U.S. We want it made in India and in Saudi. And I, I just think it's better if we spread it out a lot <laughs> um, to, to really have the resiliency that's that's required. This resiliency theme is is, is definitely one we're going to need to come back to. <laughs> I think especially given everything that we've seen in the supply chain over the last couple of years, I think especially given some of the early challenges of teething problems with some of the, uh, with a lot of new technologies. And I think the fact that there are all these new other technologies emerging, uh, emerging. And then finally, the fact that we're clearly in a much more challenging financial market than we've been for a while and what that does for availability of capital for businesses across the supply chain. I, I think this is just a theme that's going to come up again and again and again. And, and probably one we should spend a bit more time on definitely agree with that that was everything about hydrogen hosted by the team patrick malloy alicia eastman and chris jackson if you have a question for the hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com Or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.